A pretty tense scene was building at Mount Carmel when Elijah was standing in opposition to 400 prophets of the pagan god Baal. And during this time, the people of God, the Israelite people, had started wandering away from their first love. They had started wandering away from the worship of the God who had saved their ancestors out of Egypt, who had provided for their people time and time again, the God who they knew to be the creator of the heavens and the earth, and they'd begin looking in other places to find something else to worship. And so they were trying to toe the line between worshiping God and worshiping Baal. And so Elijah issued the challenge and he said, listen, you can't keep limping around from one side to the other. You can't keep riding both sides of the fence. You either need to worship God or worship Baal, but you can't do both. The two things are incompatible. And so he said, let's find out who's worthy of our worship and who's worthy of our praise. And if it's Baal, if Baal shows himself to be the one true God, then worship Baal by all means. But if it's Yahweh... If it's our God, the God of our father, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, if he shows himself to be the one true God, then you need to forsake your idolatry and worship him alone. And so Elijah set up this challenge. And they were going to take two altars, one for the prophets of Baal and one for Elijah, the prophet of God. And they were going to sacrifice a bull and put the bull on top. And then they were going to ask their God to do the impossible. To send fire from heaven and consume the altar. And whichever God could do the impossible would be the God that was worthy of worship and praise. And so Elijah, being a pretty good sport, said, you know what? You guys go first. You pick the bull. You pick the altar. You guys take the first run at this. And so the prophets of Baal did, all 450 of them. And so they constructed an altar and they put the animal on the altar and they began to pray and they began to ask their God to send fire. But nothing happened. Just silence. And so they started to pray harder. And early morning started turning into late morning. And then by noon, they were still praying and they were still crying out to their God and nothing had happened. And so Elijah decided that he would help. Did he offer a little friendly support? He says, guys, well, maybe, maybe you're just not loud enough. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe you need to to pray a little bit louder so that your God can hear you because he is a God after all. And so maybe he's busy. Maybe he's preoccupied and maybe he just doesn't know how important this is. And so if you cry out a little louder, perhaps he'll hear you. Or maybe he's gone on a trip. And he's somewhere far away, and so you need to make your voices louder so that he knows that you're trying to get his attention. And the people ramped up their prayers, and they started crying out in anguish and throwing themselves on the altar, and even resorting to some of the pagan practices of cutting themselves open and bleeding on the altar, asking their God to do something that it was becoming very obvious that he could not. And so finally, Elijah said, listen, enough is enough. It's my turn. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel, the people that were supposed to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth, and he stacked them together, and he laid the animal on the altar. But he didn't stop there. Just to show how big and how powerful his God was, Elijah dug out a trench around the altar. And he had men come with jars of water and pour jar after jar of water, saturating the altar, saturating the animal, and filling the trench up. 
And then Elijah comes to the altar and he starts to pray. And this is what he says. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And I love what 1 Kings 18.38 says. It says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now contrast the way that these two groups of people, or this one group of people and this one individual, look at how they were praying. The prophets of Baal were opening themselves up and crying out in anguish and yelling as loud as they could out of desperation because they were asking a God who could do nothing to do something that no one else could do. But Elijah, knowing that he served a God who could do the impossible without even breaking a sweat, was able to come to the altar and simply ask God to show the people who he was. And without any hint of worry, without any hint of anxiety, Elijah stepped back as God showed himself to be the one true God who makes impossible things possible. And when we look at that story, we find a very important truth. Who you pray to changes what you pray for and how you pray for it. If we devote ourselves and our lives and our prayers to deities and idols and and other false gods in our world that can't do what we ask them to do, then of course our prayers are going to come out of a place of desperation and anxiety. But when we find ourselves in the presence of the one true God who can do all things according to his will and his power, it changes not only the things that we're able to pray for, but how we're able to pray for them. Last week, we looked at what Paul called the mystery of the church. And particularly in the church at Ephesus, God had done an incredible thing where he took two groups of people, the Jewish believers in Christ and the Gentile believers in Christ, who had nothing in common and nothing together. In fact, were two very different groups of people that Paul even said that they were once far off from one another. And that God supernaturally, by the power of Christ, brought them together to function as one. And Paul said that that's something miraculous and something mysterious and something impossible that only God could do. Starting next week, over the next several weeks, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul lays out his instructions for the church. And we're going to see that the things that Paul asks of this group of people, that they would walk in harmony with one another, that they would love each other with a sacrificial love, that they would be unified in their faith and in their work and in their love, that they would function together as one. That is a really difficult, if not impossible, task to ask of any group of people, especially the group of people gathered together in Ephesus. And yet Paul was about to ask them to do that. And so Paul, of course, realized, because he's very good at this, he knew that he was in over his head. And he knew that the church at Ephesus and the church for all generations, that we're all in over our heads when it comes to doing the work that Christ has called us to do, because it's an impossible thing for us to do on our own. And so Paul began by doing the only thing he could and the only thing that matters. 
Much like Elijah, Paul realized that he needed to go to the God who can make impossible things possible. And before we dig into the fullness of the text, I want to read as an introduction verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3 and 15. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul says that God has already done an impossible thing and he is calling us to do an even more impossible thing. And so for that reason, because God is calling us to do something beyond our ability and because he's calling us to be unified as one and to go out as one and to serve one mission and one purpose and one God, because that's such a difficult thing, for that reason, I'm going to bow my knee to the God who makes impossible things possible. I'm going to bow my knee to the God for whom all families on heaven and on earth are named. The God who holds all things in the palm of his hand. The God who spoke us into being and breathed life into every single one of us. And because the God that has the power to do that, the God that has the power to create something from nothing in his image and name us and call us to his glory and his purpose, he has the power to work this impossible thing out in our lives. Before the church can accomplish this impossible work that we've been given, we need to find ourselves at the feet of the God with whom all things are possible. And we're going to look today at how we find ourselves in that same tension that Paul found himself in the church at Ephesus. And that all believers and all churches are constantly in the midst of this tension where we're able to look back at the amazing thing that God has done in bringing us all together at the mystery of God bringing us together from all different places and all different backgrounds and making us one. But we also look ahead to the things that we know that God is calling us to do and the places that God is calling us to go and realizing how difficult a task that can be. And so finding ourselves in the midst of that tension, we also need to find ourselves in the exact same place that Paul and Elijah found themselves on our knees, praying that God would give us the strength and the ability to do what he's called us to do. And so this morning, we're going to look at Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. And we're going to see what he prayed for this group of believers, but not only what he prayed for this group of believers, but how this prayer applies to the church all around the world during the time that Paul was writing this, the church through every generation since then, the church all around the world right now. And we're even going to see how this prayer applies to our church here and now. And we're going to use this prayer as a blueprint to our season of prayer and fasting leading up to our new community groups in the fall and all the other things that we're going to be doing as a church this fall here in our community and then hopefully next year all around the world. But let's read this prayer from Paul and then go to the Lord in prayer. In Ephesians three fourteen through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, 
To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, we do thank you and we praise you for your grace and your mercy. God, we thank you for this prayer that Paul has for the church. And not only that it applies to the church at Ephesus, but the church all around the world, all through the ages, and even for us here now as Redeeming Grace Community Church. We thank you for the mystery of how we got here, the hope of what's to come, and the peace that comes in knowing that we come this morning in the presence of God, a God who can do all things according to your riches and your glory and your strength and your power and your might. And so, God, we ask that you do exactly that in and through us, that you teach us through your word this morning, and that you give us a passion and an excitement for what's to come, a humble admiration for what's already happened, and a reminder that all of this is not by our effort or our work, but based on you and your kindness and your mercy extended towards us as you work through us through the grace of your son and the power of your spirit. And God, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you've ever felt inadequate for ministry, you're not wrong. If you've ever felt like God is calling you to do something that's beyond your pay grade, that you don't have the ability to do, that you don't have the strength to do, that may seem like it's way bigger than anything you could possibly accomplish, you're probably right. The reality is for each and every one of us, when I feel inadequate to live the life that God has called me to live, when I feel inadequate to do the things that God has called me to do, when I feel inadequate to live out the ministry that God has given me, I am absolutely correct in the fact that I can't do it, I don't have what it takes, and I'm not good enough to fill that role. There is a certain level of inadequacy that comes in being a follower of Christ because we realize that it's not about what we can do. In fact, if we were capable of doing what God has called us to do, there really wouldn't be anything mysterious about the church at all. If the church was made up of the best of the best and we all had all the gifts and all the abilities and all the skills and all the confidence that we needed to do all the things that God is calling us to do, then people wouldn't look at the church with awe and say, how is this a thing that's able to take place? They would look at us and say, oh, of course, that makes sense. Look who they are. Look how they work. And so Paul understood that this mystery of the church working together required that the church wouldn't be adequate to do what we're called to do on our own. And that's why Paul begins his prayer with a prayer for strength for the people of God. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family on heaven on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And what I love about this passage of scripture is that Paul doesn't pray that the church would get stronger. He doesn't go to God asking that he would improve on the things that they already had. That God would build on the foundation that they've already laid. He doesn't pray that God would hone their skills and their gifts and their abilities, but that the strength that God has given them is something that's coming from without. Something that has to be given to them, that they wouldn't be strengthened according to what's already living inside of them, but they would be strengthened with power through his spirit and their inner being. Paul prays that they would be given a strength that's according to the riches of God's glory. Not based on our limitations, 
Not based on what we have to offer. Not based on the little things that we bring to the table. But for the church at Ephesus, Paul says, don't worry about what they have, God. I want you to strengthen them according to your riches. I want you to strengthen them according to your strength. And so Paul is asking for the people of Ephesus to have a strength that comes from God that is without limitation or boundary or barrier. He asks that the strength will be born out of his power. That it's not something that lived deep inside, but something that God offers for the people that's given as a gift, not something that can be earned. That's why Paul says that he asked that God would give it to them out of his spirit. That the Spirit of God would plant this deep within them in their innermost being. Much like Paul would talk about with the, the um, excuse me, with the armor of God in Galatians. When the armor of God is all something that was born inside of people and that worked from the inside out, Paul is asking that God would give the people of Ephesus something that's born deep within them and that grows and then pours itself out in their lives and in all that they do. Paul isn't simply praying that the people would get better, but that God would supernaturally give them a strength that is undeniably his own to accomplish what is only possible by his limitless power working through his people from the inside out. He's asking God to give them something that they don't have so that they can do something that they can't do. And so he asked that God would give them strength. But he continues on. He says that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He asked that God would give them strength, but that also God would give them faith and that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. As we look at Jesus' ministry through the Gospels, One of the things that happens to Jesus time and time again is that he is approached by people, by centurions whose daughters had died, by people who were born blind, by people who couldn't walk, by lepers who were outcasts from society, and by a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years of her life. They went to any length possible to be in the presence of Jesus because they had the belief and they had the faith. That simply being in the presence of Christ was enough to do something miraculous. To make the impossible possible. And I love the response of the woman who had been bleeding for so many years. As Jesus is in the midst of this crowd and she works her way through and crawls up to Jesus and grabs the back of his cloak. And she says, I just thought that if I could just touch the hem of your garment that I could be made well. That all the doctors and all the people in my life, they couldn't do anything for me. But I knew once I heard about who you were, that if I could just be in the presence and if I could just touch a piece of your clothing, that you are so good and so powerful and you are clearly the son of God, that if I could just be there, you could do something that no one else could for me. Paul knew that that's the kind of faith that's required of the church. The kind of faith that brings us into the presence of God because Paul knew that the faith that has the power, as Jesus said, to move mountains can only be found in the presence of Christ with eyes wide open to see his power on display. And that faith in the presence of Christ allows the church to freely do our work. See, Paul is praying for the church of Ephesus a prayer for salvation. 
He's also praying for them a prayer of sustenance and for a saving faith given by his spirit. And it's a prayer that the church would move in faith inside of the presence of Christ as Jesus dwells and reigns in their hearts, living and reigning and working in everything that they do. Paul's prayer is a prayer that reminds the Christians at Ephesus that they not only belong to Christ, but that they are united with Christ. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk a lot about what it means to be united with Christ and how much of an incredible gift that is for us individually and as a church. But not only are they united with Christ, but that in the presence of Christ, with Christ dwelling in their hearts, that he is moving in them for their good, for God's glory, and for the work of the kingdom. I love how Matthew Henry described this passage in his commentary. He said that Christ is said to dwell in his people as he is always present with them by his gracious influences and operations. Observe, it is a desirable thing to have Christ dwell in our hearts. And if the law of Christ be written there and the love of Christ be shed abroad there, then Christ dwells there. Christ is an inhabitant in the soul of every good Christian. Where his spirit dwells, there he dwells. And he dwells in the heart by faith, by means of the continual exercise of faith upon him. He says that faith opens the door to the soul to receive Christ, admits him, and submits to him. By faith, we are united to Christ and have an interest in him. And so Paul is praying that the people of God would have the kind of faith that opens the door where Christ dwells, not only in their hearts individually, but in the corporate heart of the church at large, and that he would move and reign in and through them in everything that they do. And that kind of faith that they had would give them the ability to trust that Jesus is truly working in them and that it's his strength that is leading them and guiding them where they need to go. And so they're able to take those steps of faith and do what they're called to do, even when it seems impossible. So Paul prays that they would have strength and that they would have faith. He also prays that they would have love. He continues that thought, saying, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. I learn a lot anytime I get to talk with Mr. Lee, especially if it's about plants. Lee, if you haven't picked his brain about plants, is, is a plant guy. And I'm not. I kill plants regularly. We're doing better with our indoor plants. They're starting to grow and they're being healthier than they have before. Outdoor stuff is still a little sketchy. And so I go to Lee with all of my plant questions. And not too long ago, Lee gave us a fig tree. And I'm really excited about the fig tree. It's a very pretty tree, and it's actually producing figs now, which is also exciting, even though I can't take credit for it because it actually grew on Lee's property for about 40 years before it was entrusted to me. And so I have done nothing to help this thing grow at all. But when we were planting the tree, we were just talking about all the things that go into to planting and all that kind of stuff. And we were digging in my yard. And the problem with my yard is for every six cubic inches of dirt, there's 43 feet of rock. Our yard is just full of rocks everywhere. And so we were digging in the place that we wanted the tree to go, and we'd hit a couple rocks, and we threw them out. We hit a very big rock, and so we pull this large rock out and put it down, and then we keep digging, and there's more rock. And so we think, all right, well, let's just make this hole wider and see if we can find a place where there isn't rock. And the wider that we dug the hole, the more we realized that this rock is 
at least eight feet in diameter. Very big rock. There was no getting around the rock. And so now we have a two-foot hole on top of a gigantic rock. And we're tired, and it's hot. And so we make the, the executive decision, the two of us, that we're just going to put the tree here and see what happens. And he told me that if it started to brown, it started to look a little sickly, then it probably wasn't taking, and we'd have to dig it up and move it. But we were okay with that decision for the day because we didn't want to dig anymore because we were frustrated. And so we put the tree down on this rock. We put it back together. We put all the dirt back over it, and the trees thrived. And it's amazing. And part of that is because of how the root system works. And again, Lee could tell you far more about this, but I've taken some of the information and now I'm going to use it. And so you can pretend like I'm teaching it to you. But the taproot on these trees goes straight down and it can go through rock. It can go through gravel. It can go through difficult soil. And it will, with incredible tenacity, dig its way down as far as it can to be able to find moisture, to find water, and to be able to set up a support system that would keep the tree from falling. And then these top roots will spread out and they'll go as far as they need to to be able to find the soil that has the right nutrients and has the right amount of moisture. And again, even these roots that spread out are designed to keep the tree from falling down. The root system is incredibly important for the tree because it keeps it stable, it keeps it healthy, and it enables it to bear fruit. And because of that, I don't think it's any accident that Paul uses this language to define love. When he says that the church, that their hearts should be rooted and grounded in love. See, if the power of the Spirit and the faith that comes through Christ are able to make the church worthy of doing the work that we're called to do, it's love that keeps us grounded. It's love that keeps us stable and it's love that keeps us bearing fruit. After all, it was Paul who talked about the importance of love in 1 Corinthians 13 when he said, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And that same truth is true for the church at Ephesus that Paul was writing to. The same truth is true to the Christians all around the world and the church all around the world, the universal church. And that same truth is true about us as Redeeming Grace Community Church. If we do all the right things, if we look the part of a church, but it's not motivated and founded and rooted in love, then it means absolutely nothing. If the church at Ephesus were to have worship services that were filled with beautiful noises and beautiful music of men and angels, but they didn't have love, then it was just noise. If they had prophetic powers and they were able to understand the deep, passionate truths and mysteries about the power of God, but if they didn't have love, it was nothing. Even if they had the kind of faith that moved mountains, it was nothing without love. If they gave away all they had, if they died martyrs' deaths, if they did everything that would have made them look like the church of God but weren't motivated, rooted, and grounded in love, then it was completely meaningless. For the Ephesian Christians and all Christians who have lived since then to do anything of use for the kingdom of God, it had to be rooted in love. If not, just like a tree, it would dry up wither and fall to the ground. But 
the work of the church when it's founded on love will stand strong in any season, stand against any adversity and any turmoil. It'll keep the body healthy and it'll bear much fruit. And so Paul was praying for the church that everything you do, when you have this strength and you have this faith, and as we're going to see, you have this knowledge about the love of God, that all of those things would be rooted in and grounded in and born out of a deep love for God, that you would love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also that it would be born out of a love for one another and for the community, because without that love, it's nothing. So Paul prayed that they would have the kind of love that Christ has for them. He keeps moving on, saying that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul prays that they would have the knowledge of the love of Jesus. If you watch a lot of movies and TV shows, a lot of times if it's any sort of of activity or a crime show or a buddy cop show, there's this trope in movies and in literature and all kinds of things that you have one person who is the brains and one person who's the brawn, right? You have one person who's smart and one person who's strong. And a lot of times we look at those things as dynamically in opposition to one another. We're used to people either being smart or strong. And so we typecast people, we stereotype people, because we, somewhere in the back of our minds, don't think that those two things go together. But Paul sees no difference. In fact, he sees that those two things are embedded together. He prays that the church would have this deep indwelling love so that they could have the strength to know the love of Christ. That without strength, they can't have the knowledge. And without the knowledge, they can't have the strength. In fact, in this prayer, we see the same pattern that Paul has in a lot of his exhortations to the church. And really what we see all through Scripture about a life of faith in God. That it's a very cyclical thing. And that each part of our faith, each part of our work for Christ, each part of everything that we do fuels the other. And so Paul begins with this knowledge of who God is, saying that God is our Father from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named. And so Paul knows who God is, and the church at Ephesus knows who God is on the base level. They know his power and his might and his strength. And out of that, Paul is able to pray that God, that God would give them that strength, would give them that love, would give them all the characteristics that belong to him. And so they would become stronger. They would become people of faith. They would become people of love so that they could do the work that they're called to do. And that the more they go out and to do this work, the more they would realize how much Christ loves them. The more they loved one another, the more they would realize the love that Christ has for them. The more that they were strengthened by the gospel, the more they would realize the deep love of Jesus. And then the more they realized that love of Jesus, the more they would be strengthened and the more they would have love for one another and the more faith they would have to be able to do the things that they were called to do. And Paul prays that this knowledge would be communal. He says, I pray that that you can comprehend with all the saints. 
that each and every one of you would be of one heart and of one mind. And again, we're going to talk much more in depth over the next few weeks about what this oneness looks like in the life of the church. But Paul is saying, I don't want anyone to be alone. I don't want anyone to be off on their own, doing their own thing. I want everyone to be together under this knowledge that Christ loves you. And I want you to know together how deeply and how passionately Christ loves you. I want you to comprehend something that can't fully be explained. And I love the way that Paul describes it. He says, I want you to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. He says, I want you to understand how wide the love of Christ is. I want you to understand how far-reaching the love of Christ is, that there's no limitations to where it can go, and there's no place to which it can't reach, that it can reach to people who are far off and to people who are near. I want you to understand that there's no height to which the love of Christ can't reach and no depth to which the love of Christ can't stoop to rescue his people and to love his people and to save his people. I want you to know with one heart and one mind that this is how big the love of God is. He wants them to dive deeply into that knowledge. In John Calvin's commentary on this passage, he says that the love of Christ is held out to us as the object which ought to occupy our daily and nightly meditations and in which we ought to be wholly plunged. Paul is praying that the people would be so consumed by understanding the love of God that it would occupy their every waking thought. Because this is how big and how awesome it is that it's going to take you the rest of your life to know it and comprehend it. But Paul is praying that they would be able to get these little glimpses to be able to see exactly how awesome and far-reaching the love of Christ is. But he asked that they would not only comprehend it, but that they would know it. See, it's possible to comprehend and understand something from a distance, but Paul continues by saying that you would know the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul is praying that they would have such an encounter with the love of Christ that they would know it personally and intimately, that it wouldn't just be a concept in the back of their minds, but it would be something that was an intimate part of who they were. Paul's prayer for the church is that they would have an intimate understanding and a personal knowledge of something that is beyond their ability to know. That they would know personally and comprehend fully, at least to the limitations that they could, the love of Christ that he lavishes out on broken sinners and restores and redeems his people through. So he prays that they would have strength and faith and love and the knowledge of the love of Christ. And then he prays that they would have completion. Verse 19, he says, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul asked that God would take all of these individual things and put them together to make the people at the church of Ephesus individually and as one body to make them complete. Paul was praying that God would take the strength and the faith and the love and the knowledge and put all of those pieces together so that the people could be complete in Christ. So that the church would lack nothing and so that they were able to be fully worthy of their calling, gifted for the mission that God has called them to and fitted for eternity. He asked that God would not only make them one, but would make them whole so that they were able to do what God was calling them to do by the power of God. 
And he closes with this doxology, saying, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul closes this prayer by asking all of these things of a God who can accomplish all of that and so much more. Paul ends his prayer with this assurance that not only is God capable of doing everything that Paul is asking for the church at Ephesus and the church throughout the ages, but he knows that God could do far more than that. That God has the power and strength to do things that Paul couldn't even think to ask or be able to imagine. And so he asks all of these things to that God and asks that that God alone would receive all the glory through the work of the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Paul ends by saying, all this strength that, you want to, that I want you to give us, all this love that we want to have for each other, this faith that is going to allow us to take the steps that we need to take because Christ is dwelling in our hearts and this knowledge of who you are and how much you love us, all this stuff that you're doing for us, God, it's not for us, but it's for you. All the work that we're going to do as the church, all the things that we're going to do together, it's not about us and building a name for the church at Ephesus or for Christians or for Redeeming Grace Community Church, but all of this stuff that we're asking you to do in the life of the church is not for us, but it's for your glory and your glory alone because it's all about you. This is a really powerful and profound prayer that Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. It's a very powerful and profound prayer for the church universal. For every Christian man, woman, and child that's lived from the time of the resurrection of Christ until right now and everyone all over the world wherever they find themselves. But it's also a very powerful prayer for our church as well. Because I've already mentioned we find ourselves in that same tension. We can stand right now and see what God has done over the last several years, just the few years that we've been in existence, but how many things God has done in the life of our church. The places that God has brought us and the mystery of how he brought us together, even sitting in this room right now, there are people that you have no contact with outside of here and now that you may have never met before, but God has brought us all together supernaturally for one purpose and one cause and for one reason. And so while we can look and talk about the history of our church and see all the things that took place to get us where we are right now, we know that God was working under all of those obvious things to do something not so obvious, to do something supernatural and to do something amazing. And so just like Paul was celebrating the mystery of the church and the mystery of the gospel in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we get to celebrate this morning the mystery of how God has brought us this far already and all the things that God has done in the life of our church. But we also know there's a lot of good things coming up. And we are, as a staff, uh, really excited about this fall because we feel like at this point we've grown to the point where now we're moving out of what's been a very long church planting mentality to now feeling like we're able to do things as we grow as a church. And so there's a lot of things that will be coming up that we'll be talking about over the next several weeks and that Adam will be bringing up in the announcements and on all the social media and the website. We'll be talking a lot about some of these things. But the cornerstone of all of this is going to be the launching of our new community groups. 
From the very beginning of our church, we knew that that was going to be a huge part of who we were when God enabled us and we had the ability and the people to be able to have a functioning community group ministry. And so this September, we're going to be starting with our first three community groups. One, Adam will lead at his house. One, Drew will lead at his house. And then Stephanie and I are going to host one at our house that Lydia is going to lead. And these small groups are a very important part of the DNA of who we are as a church because, again, our name is Redeeming Grace Community Church. And we want to be a church that is not only for our community, but a church that is a community. And we really, truly believe that these, mission, these community groups are going to be missional communities in the neighborhoods in which they're planted. And so we want to look at these community groups as a doorway into our church to reach people who might not just naturally walk through the doors of the church, to build through our social networks and through also just the the homes that are around the house that our small groups are going to meet, and to go out and to meet the people who are there who need the gospel and to build relationships, to invite people into homes, to pour into people's lives, to invest in people's lives, being rooted and grounded in love and establishing this foundation that we are a church that doesn't exist in these four walls, but a church who spreads out to everywhere that our members are loving and serving our community. And we really do believe that we're a church designed to multiply. We would one day love to be able to plant churches and send out missionaries. And where a lot of that starts is in these community groups. And we'd like to see these community groups grow with people coming to know Christ through the work of the community groups and through the fellowship and the the intimate relationships that are developed there. And we'd like to see those community groups grow and expand and multiply. We have a very specific passion to see small groups, to see our community groups grow in the neighborhoods here around the church. And to be able to reach people that, that we have otherwise no direct contact with. And if we do this well... It's going to be something that we can't do well. If we do this the right way, it's going to be something that we can't do the right way. If we do this the way that we feel like we're being led to, it's something that only God is going to be able to do in the life of our church. And so we're praying that God would do something incredibly awesome through these community groups, that we would see people grow in their faith, that we would see people come to a new faith in Christ, that we would see baptisms, that we would see deep, long-lasting relationships formed, that we would see brokenness restored. We're asking God to do some incredible things through these community groups, and so we need to be asking God to do incredible things through these community groups and through the other ministries that will be launching this fall. And so we're going to use this prayer as a template for what we're going to pray for for our church. We're going to ask that God gives us the strength that we don't have to be able to accomplish what we can't do. We're going to ask God to give us the faith and remind us that Christ is moving in and working through and reigning through all of us as followers of Christ. And we're going to ask him to move for our good and for his glory. We're going to ask God that we would be constantly rooted in love and founded on love and that every single thing that we do is going to be motivated first and foremost out of a love for God and then secondarily out of a love for one another and a love for our community. We're going to ask that God would remind us constantly how much he loves us. And that we would be able to comprehend this huge, wide-spanning love that Christ has for his church. And that we would know the kind of love that Jesus has for us intimately. And that through all of that, that God would bring us to completion. That God would make us worthy of the calling that he's given us as Redeeming Grace Community Church. 
that we would lack nothing, that we would be fully worthy of everything he's called us to do and gifted for our mission, and then, of course, ultimately, that we would be fitted for eternity. And so now, between tomorrow, Monday, July 24th, and Saturday, September 9th, I'm going to ask all of us to go into a season of prayer and fasting. We talked about it a little bit last week. I'll put some stuff on the website so that everybody is, is fully aware of how all this is working. But what I'm asking all of us to do is to take six days a week over those, I, I believe it's seven weeks between now and September 9th, Monday through Saturday, and not only spend time in prayer, but also to spend time fasting. And so how you fast and what you fast from is, of course, totally between you and the Lord. If you want to try a total fast during that time, be my guest. Talk to your doctor, but be my guest. If you want to fast from a certain type of food Monday through Saturday, from one meal a day Monday through Saturday, from a certain activity that you participate in, or even a certain type of technology, whatever it is that you feel called and led to fast from, I'm asking that we all spend Monday through Saturday of every week leading up to this to fast and to pray. All that I ask is that during the time when you would normally eat the food or eat the meal or participate in the activity or the technology, that you would spend that time praying specifically for our church and for all of these things. And at the end of the service, Drew has a, a template where I've taken this prayer out of Ephesians 3 and, and personalized it a little bit for our church. So if you're looking for a place to start or a prayer to pray every day, then, then you can just use that as the guide. Now, one thing real quickly, just if you're asking why just Monday through Saturday, traditionally in the life of the church, Sundays are never fast days. Sundays are feast days. So even in a season like Lent, where fasting is part of the season, on Sunday you get to break fast. You get to be free from the fast. And while that's exciting just in general, because if you're fasting from donuts, then you just hit up Dunkin' Donuts on Sunday and just overeat for the week because you have to store up and make sure that your donut quota is met for the entire week. Not only is it exciting because you get to break the fast, but I think it really fits into what we're praying for. Because that means that when we all come together on Sundays, that we're all going to be a little bit happier because we're all going to be off of our fast and we're going to be celebrating the reason why we're praying and the reason why we're fasting, that God has brought us together to do his work and accomplish his purpose and his mission here in Loganville. And then as I've said, over the next year, we're praying that we'll be able to find a place stateside that we can go and minister to and love and serve and then also a place internationally that we can devote our mission efforts towards. And so starting tomorrow, we're asking for a season of prayer and fasting to pray that God would do through us what we can't do on our own, to pray to the God who makes impossible things possible, to make an impossible thing from our church very possible, because we're still small and our world is very big. And so sometimes it can seem like we could be insignificant or that we don't have the power, the strength or the manpower to do the things that God is calling us to do. But thank God we don't have to. And so we're going to ask God to work in and through our church in a way that we could never imagine or understand or comprehend. But we're hoping that this time next year, when we look back, we'll be like, man, what an amazing mystery that God has worked out in the life of our church. And we'll continue to see God do incredible things as he grows us together as one, as he deepens our faith and our knowledge of his love, but also as he gives us the ability to go out and to reach out in the broken places of our world and share the goodness of the gospel.
And so after the service, I'm just going to have Drew hang out kind of right by this door. And so if you'll go see Drew, he'll give you one of the, the prayer sheets. And also, please keep an eye out on social media and on our website. I'll have a full write-up of, of the prayer and fasting and how we're going to be doing it, why we're going to be doing it. And we'll keep constant kind of reminders going for all of that and post some prayer things through the social media that you can be actively praying for about the things that are coming up in the life of our church.